enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of Star Brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And how are you doing? It's getting cold outside. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's, uh, I'm breaking out the winter hat, I'm breaking out the gloves, um, putting layers on on top, still trying to stay with the shorts for as long as possible. Um, but for me, definitely the, the, the upper body gets colder than the lower body. Um, but I'm definitely throwing on layers. Hope you're doing well. Um, I got, got some friends out here who are upper upstate New York, Minnesota, uh, UP. Where it's, it's, it's very, very cold. And I see you, I see how hard you're working and it is really fun to witness. So great job with that. I want to give a shout out. Paper Trails Greeting Company, one of my favorite sponsors of all time. If for no other reason than they are founded by someone just like you, a dedicated amateur runner founded the business this summer and makes these wonderfully, just beautifully done, artistically done uh, cards, greeting cards that are hysterical. And they're all niched down for the running community. It's all running jokes. They're like inside jokes within the running community and so much more. They're absolutely fantastic. When I started doing ad reads for them about a month ago, they had 35 cards. They got more than that now. They're doing a great job. Kristen over there is absolutely phenomenal. She's a one-woman wonder. And you should go check it out. I know you should. This is card season. Right, we've got the holidays coming around, and it's just that time of year. So go check them out today at Paper Trails Greeting Co. That's Paper Trails Greeting Co. dot com. You can also you check them out on Instagram. Their handles are same as their website. Just go over there, check them out. It looks fantastic, and you can save fifteen percent on any order. Just use code Rambling at checkout. That's fifteen percent off any order for the best cards you've ever seen. So. Today's episode is with Lisa Mueller. Oh, gosh. What an absolute phenomenon Lisa is. Uh, my goodness. I was talking to her over email, and I'm like, hey, do you have a, any bio at all? Just you know, make sure I have my research done before, uh, before the show. This woman is like a one-woman wonder. So she has... There's so, so many great things from an athletic perspective, um, but it hasn't been this linear process. And on top of that, she was like like a debate champion in, uh, in, in school growing up and loves like love public speaking. And now is actually a professor uh, of, of uh, I think, poli sci in college now. And she just kicked some serious butt in the marathon. She had that that arc that so many of us want to have. She ran three marathons over a few years and basically cut them down, you know, 10 to 15 minutes each one. And that's one of those things. It doesn't happen for everybody. We always say that, like, you know, your your progress isn't going to be linear. And it wasn't for her either, because for a long time, she had these starts and stops. And you're going to hear all about it. And she really is a phenomenal person. But recently, my goodness. She is really kicking butt the last two years, and it's exciting to see how and why she's able to do that. And she actually broke broke the three-hour uh, marathon barrier in a virtual race in a very, very unique training module because it was basically like trained for a marathon, got canceled. Trained for a marathon, got canceled. Started training for another marathon and just kind of did one on her own. And I know we can all get used to, or we've gotten used to at this point, some of us, the idea of a marathon being canceled, it stinks. Um, but she was able to turn uh, lemonades out of lemons. And it is really, really fun to listen to. So let's get into it with Lisa Mueller. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And you contribute so much to the running community. So thank you. Wow. Look at you right out of the gate. Commenting the host. You didn't need to do that. I'm so excited to have you on the show because of what you're doing in the running community uh, as an athlete and just, oh man, just it is remarkable what you've been able to do. You've been on this journey over the past few years as a runner that so many people kind of aspire to in some degree or another. And I'm really excited to have you on. In fact, we exchanged a couple emails and you had referenced a, a podcast that I did with Mary Johnson and Lauren Flores about, shoot, about a year ago now, I guess, um, where they had the, the kind of their, their sub three marathon project where they had this group of women who were, you know, really trying to break three hours. Uh, and it was a really, you know, shoot, that was one of those episodes that 
really hit a lot of people because it was not only aspirational, but inspirational for so many people. And it was such a unique twist. So, you know, when you, you referenced that right away in our, in our communications, what about that project, that episode, those women kind of really connected with you? Well, at the time, I was on this hunt for any content that could psych me up and inspire me to chase my own sub three goal that for me at the time was really kind of audaciously ambitious. My PR was 314 something. um, And that was only my second marathon. And so I didn't really have the experience to know whether shooting for a sub three already was too much to bite off. And so I was already a fan of your show, but then um, in searching through some of the archives, I was really excited to discover that episode because like you said, it was aspirational and inspirational. And, um, you know, just any anecdote I could gobble up about women who accomplished this, this milestone really helped me imagine in concrete terms, how I could achieve that too. At the same time, though, I noticed in that episode that all of the women had been a lot closer (laughs) to sub three than I had. So I left it with still some trepidation. Um, But, you know, I figured like YOLO, I mean, we're in COVID, like the world is crazy. Like, you know, what do I have to lose? And so I just went for it. Yeah, that's a great point. I think there was one runner in the group that was fairly close to you, I'm trying to recall, she was around like 310 to 312. Yeah, I think she had a really impressive half time, though. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, exactly. I think she had like a 126 half or something. Yeah. So it was more of just like, all right, can we extend her marathon pace a little bit more? Um, yeah, so when you were at, so you were at that 314 levels, so you had, the, again, I mean, it was a 327 debut, which is great. All right, which is fantastic. Right. I mean, some people do that and that's that's a lifetime goal. So you had that. Then you chop it down to 314. When you're at that level and you're kind of looking around like, all right, can I do this? Can I not do this? What about that? um, Look externally for either um, gratification, not gratification, but people like either benchmarks or mentors or examples was necessary for you beyond just internally looking at what you've been able to do in the past and trying to come up with what you think you're capable of doing in the future? Well, I think something that, I don't know, injected me with that audacity, like made me think that I could do this, was my athletic background. And I imagine we're going to get into this more uh, momentarily. But I knew that I was a competent athlete. Um, I have a long competitive cycling background. Um, Although I've not I'm not an athlete, um, you know, dating back to my youth, but in fairly recent history, I had had some strong athletic performances and I was hoping to harness that in this sport that was relatively new to me. I, you know, I sound a lot more confident now than I was at the time after that first marathon. I <laughs> like, let me just bring you back to that moment. So it was the Twin Cities Marathon. I had never run longer than like 16 or 18 miles. Um, you know, I stand on the start line in the 330 or no, 325 pace group. And I'm like physically shaking. And the pacer's like, you know, are you okay? And I said, this is my first marathon. I'm terrified. And he said, are you sure you want to be in this pace group in your first marathon? I said, I don't know. Maybe not. Oh my not. God. What a thing to say to somebody like at the starting line. He, he, you know, he ended up being my greatest cheerleader. And, um, but I think he just wanted to make sure that I, you know, wasn't going to bomb my first marathon and hate it forever. I just told him, my coach told me to be in this group. In fact, my coach told me to be in a faster group, but I you know, hesitated. So I compromised. I chose the 325 pace group. I ended up running like lockstep with the pacer the whole race. One of the few people to do so because some of our group members sped ahead, others dropped off. And when we crossed the finish line together, you know, talk about pre-COVID days, like the pacer, his name was Ryan. Hi, Ryan. I don't remember who you are, but um, you inspired me. And, you know, we gave each other a big hug. And then I like could, I ceased to be able to walk. I like just had to sit on the curb and I'm looking around me 
And there are all these marathoners who, yeah, they look weary, but they look functional. <laughs> they are able to, you know, at least hobble to their loved ones. It, it took me about, oh, I should ask my partner because um, he told me later he was worried that I like got lost or was in the med tent because it took, you know, half an hour or more for me to just make it out of the chute. And then when I found him, I had to use his bicycle as a walker. I, I like just my legs crumbled beneath me and I thought, you know, okay, I'm an athlete, but apparently I'm not a runner. Like this is a whole different deal. And so, you know, I knew that I had the, like the, the motor to cardiovascularly go a lot faster, but my lungs were not my limiter in the last 10 K of that first marathon. Like my legs just wouldn't propel me forward. And so I thought, all right, if I can figure out like, the leg strength, like, you know, pounding component of this running thing, then maybe I can get to a lot faster time. Yeah, so much there. All right, let me talk about one thing uh, first. Is that So when you immediately post-race were like, oh my God, like, this, <laughs> I am not a runner. This was awful. What were, <laughs> yeah. were you, you know, now with with, with perfect, um, you know, clarity, uh, you know, looking back on your past, what were you, th- when, you, when, you when you phrased it like that, can you contextualize that for me? Because obviously, like, you just ran a marathon. Like, you were the literal definition of a runner. Like, you had just run for three and a half hours. So what about that feeling caused you to have that initial reaction? Um, was it more like expectation level or viewing your future as a, a different kind of attainable goal? Like, what what was that? Well, I think it was a eureka moment for me because I understood for the first time in a visceral like very physical way that running is a different animal. And, you know, I knew this intellectually before. I mean, otherwise I, I would have had more hubris at the start line. Like I would have started with that 315 group, you know, and like I had read, you know, about other cyclists who had dabbled in running. I mean, hell Lance Armstrong, right? I mean, like, let's not go down the Lance rabbit hole, please. But, um, he, he was totally destroyed in his, uh, I think it was at New York when he like eked out a 250 or something, something. And he said like, you know, screw that. Like that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I don't know, maybe he just like, you know, wasn't doped up enough that day or something, but I suspect that it was because of the impact. Right. Um, yeah. He, he hadn't run more. I think his long runs prior to that hadn't extended past even like, I don't think he even hit the two hour mark in terms of long runs preparing for it. So it was more like, my cardiovascular system is is totally is, is certainly well enough to handle this. I can just kind of make this happen. And that, I mean, that's actually a dangerous place to be in. I mean, and that's what had ruined my any prior attempts, like in the previous, you know, handful of years to dabble in running because I was in cycling race shape. And so my, you know, my endurance far exceeded my resilience my, you know, my joints and my bones and the various muscle groups that you engage in running, but not in cycling. And so I would instantly injure myself because I would just go out and like hammer for, you know, 5k and then be laid up for a week. So, you know, I was experiencing some version of that after the marathon, you know, I hadn't been reckless. I had worked with a coach, but you know, there's a learning curve in running as anyone listening knows very well. And I was naive about that to an extent, or I, I hadn't registered it on the visceral level um, until I finished that race. Now, as an active cyclist, you were no, um, you were no stranger to very long days of exercise, right? Cyclists are known for these mammoth bike rides for working professional. Usually these are on weekends where you're out there for several hours and, and just, you know, not hammering, but you're just out there for a very long time. And that's kind of like the bedrock for a lot of cyclists in terms of getting work in. And when you have that as, you know, part of your background, and maybe this isn't the case, maybe I'm just, I'm going too far with my assumptions here. But if that is part of your background, and then you move over to running and really thinking about it as an endurance sport, as opposed to like, say, you're preparing for a 5k, where you're planning on being again, out there for hours and hours and hours, what was it like for you from a transition standpoint, of all of a sudden, you having this governor on what you can do safely from a mileage standpoint, which maybe you didn't have on the bike? Yeah, yeah, you're right. So um, I think it it stopped me from being greedy. 
on the bike to a degree you can push harder than you quote unquote should because the consequences are not as dire. You know, like fast forwarding a little bit, I ended up with a stress fracture about a year after that first marathon and that wouldn't have occurred on the bike. Now on the bike, I might <laughs> like we can get into this too if you want. Like I've had various other fractures. They were not from stress. <laughs> they were from like getting hit by cars and stuff like that. Um crashing in races. But, you know, if you um if you have a workout prescribing 70% and you go 85% for a few days on the bike, you know, you can get away with that. Like it's not optimal for your training, but you're not going to be out of commission for six plus months, which is the case with many stress fractures. And so with running, I had to be more diligent in like my faithfulness to a training plan. I also had to be really mindful about fueling. Um, and, you know, I was not terrible at either of these things, but because I was like always like on that tightrope with running, I just had to pay even more attention to it. Yeah. And so many people who come from an experienced athletic background who get into running end up falling into this trap. Right. Because they view it as like, all right, I should be able to do X, Y, Z because of what I've done in the past. And it's from a logical perspective, you can see how that argument starts to manifest itself. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, or that not argument with that hypothesis starts to manifest itself. I'm talking to an academic. You're you're a political science professor at one of the best colleges in the country. So I want to make sure I get my my word choice just so. So I want to. Um, but with all of that being said, you can see where people would come into that. Um, and it's funny because like I you know, oftentimes when you see people getting these overuse injuries who are new to running, it's almost the people who come from an athletic background in some other sense that, again, this is purely anecdotal, who end up falling into that trap early on as opposed to someone who's like, hey, I'm new to running. What should I do? Like, but I'm, I'm coming from, say, like the couch to 5K program. Usually those people aren't like going to like David, David Goggins their way to a stress fracture out of nowhere. You know what I mean? They're going to be like, am I sure I'm ready to run for 30 minutes? Maybe I shouldn't, you know, as opposed to someone who's like, again, coming from another sport who's like, yeah, man, let's go to the track and go kick some butt. Like, I'm ready to roll. And it's like, yeah, but your tendons aren't ready to roll, right? Or some other thing isn't ready to, ready to move. Right, yeah. And, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm a, an academic. And so my attitude is there's no problem I can't research my way out of. And so, you know, I had read all of the cautionary tales. And I went into this running endeavor intent on not being stupid, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I gotta, I gotta jump in. Anymore. I gotta jump in. That's the way you phrase it, and like how it was couched in like the academic research sense. The cautionary tales, like immediately, like brought back, like that should be like a series of books, like the or like series of essays, like the Canterbury Tales. Yeah, like the cautionary tales, just marketed to runners. Like here you are. Here's your set of twelve that you should research or that you should read. You know, for the next six months or so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, I I'm a I'm a grown person. I'm like you know I'm. I'm going to avoid the common pitfalls. And so I immediately hired a coach. I mean, I was used to working with coaches from bike racing. Um, you know, I like, you know, I, I have a distant background in, in eating disorders. And fortunately, you know, I was, um, you know, well enough beyond that to not, you know, worry about bone density um, too much, you know, as long as I stayed on top of things. Um, and so when I got a stress fracture, it really caught me off guard because in my mind, I had done everything right, but it just came back to me being a newbie marathoner. And I had, you know, despite all of my supposedly exhaustive research, I had overlooked a critical component of thriving as a runner, which is your form and mobility and, um, you know, just moving like a runner. Um, and that was still very abstract to me. Like, you know, you can ask a handful of people, like, what is ideal running form? And you'll get this like smorgasbord of like vague answers like, oh, well, you should slightly lean forward or you should have, you know, X cadence or you should drive your knee and you should kick your butt. And like, I'm, you know, trying to think about doing all those things like while I'm running, it just wasn't happening. And so, you know, when I went to see this like small army of specialists to figure out why I got the stress fracture and how to get better from it. 
um, the variable that emerged as the most important was, was my form. And I finally found a team of people who could tell me in useful ways how to fix that form. And like, that is kind of a whole can of worms and I'll leave it up to you. Like how much detail you want me to describe about that. But you know, that's a, that's a work in progress. And um, I've heard from my running specialist PTs that it can take up to eight years for a runner to fall into their optimal form. And I've only been doing this for like three years. Right. And so, um, that was a big, that was a big step in my, in my transition from a cyclist to a runner is learning how to move in different ways, not just avoiding the obvious stupid things. <laughs> yeah. When I think about running form, and I'd love to hear if this jibes with the advice that you've gotten. Certainly I'm not a professional um, PT or anything like that, but I view it. And this is from my own research and readings and things like that. of like, when it comes to changing running form, you shouldn't just think about, all right, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, right? I think there are certain things that, that, that benefit like that benefit to those to that degree. Um, but ultimately, I think it's taking the step down of like, okay, I'm going to work on my strength and I'm going to work on my mobility. And then through training, my form will start to change because I laid the groundwork through these other activities to allow my body to find its optimal um, stride at different paces. Whereas if you just say, hey, I'm going to change it to be X, Y, Z, but you don't, but you don't um, work on what's undergirding your running form. And then you're setting yourself up for failure potentially because you're changing it in a way that maybe your body isn't ready to handle. So I think oftentimes you hear like, all right, don't work on changing your form. If you just run fast, then it will change your form. And, and certainly that will be true and you'll become more efficient. But if you work on the mobility, you work on the strength, and then you train in a way that's working different um, different physical symptoms, symptoms, uh, systems, there we go, um, then that really can, you know, can really get you to that point. Again, because if you start changing your form and you don't have the mobility or strength to maintain it, then you might be doing more negative than positive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, a big revelation for me was hearing from PTs that good form will happen organically once you train your movements and your strength. So it'll, yeah, it'll, you don't have to think about it while you're running. And that was such a relief because it's not fun to think about your form while you're running. Like if you've ever tried that, it's like, you know, it, it robs us of a lot of what we enjoy in running, which is the ability just to like meditate in movement and talk to your running friends and, you know, look at the scenery. Um, and so I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So how do I do that? Because all of the vague advice I had received before, like, oh, do strength training. I'm like, okay, I walk into the gym and it's like, what do I do? And, you know, I had heard how easy it is to put in a lot of effort, like in weight training um, or in, you know, flexibility and like yoga and whatever, and get nowhere in your running. And, you know, I... <laughs> Part of me thinks like an economist. It's like, I want to be efficient about my approach to running. Like, I want to make sure that my investments are yielding something useful. I don't want to just go spin my wheels or worse, injure myself on some like weight machine to no avail. And so, you know, like he doesn't pay me to say this, but like the most useful resource I have found in strength and mobility specifically for running is... Um, Jay Dickery's book is it Dickery or Desherry, um, Running Rewired, and like I recommend to anyone who's like perplexed about what strength and mobility for running even means in practice to like read that book cover to cover, because it like used metaphors to help me finally grasp what I was trying to do. So like one metaphor was like, uh, you know, what is the point of having a car with a ton of horsepower if the chassis is terrible. Like their car is going to fall apart. And I was like, oh yeah, that's probably why I got a stress fracture. And that wasn't just my intuition. That's what my PTs were telling me too. They were like, you've got this power, but like, you know, your body is not channeling it in the right way. A lot of that power is going directly into your lower leg. And that's why your fibula cracked, you know? And so 
you know, it also helped me realize that I needed to not just be stronger, like in my glutes and, you know, kind of these core areas that, you know, any, any PT will tell you to work on. But I also needed to, you know, as the title of that book mentions, rewire my brain to learn new way, new habits of movement. And so some of these exercises that are like, you know, a handful of minutes a few times a week, um, they're not there to make you like buff and like stronger. Like some of them are strength specific, but many of them- If I'm not going to be buff, Lisa, if I'm not going to be buff for my workouts, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. There's just no way. Another great quote that I love from that book is, uh, a six pack is for show, not for go. (laughs) I'm like, that's very quotable. Um, I don't know. We're an an inclusive podcast here, Lisa. Can I get an and and not an or? Can I have both? Do do I I really have to choose? Um, I think you might have to choose, actually. I think if you are working (laughs) on the part of your core that's going to make you a faster runner, you're not going to be working as much on the part of your core that gets you on the cover of like men's health. Like, there you go. See, you know if what? I'm on the cover of Men's Health, it's, it's the before picture, not the after picture. So no, I, I can I can certainly relate to that. And it's funny. I've heard that from so many people as well. That idea of it's the, it's the it's these muscles that you don't necessarily see in the mirror. Um, not that people look at their you know lower legs in the mirror that often, but um, that oftentimes can be so beneficial uh, to long term success for all the reasons that you're mentioning. Hey, no, I didn't think I didn't say anything about legs. Like runners definitely ogle their own legs. And I know this because I read Scott Fobble stuff and he's like, oh, yeah, I shave my legs just for vanity. Right. <laughs> In bike racing, people shave their legs, too. And some of them like to say it's for like aerodynamics or because when you get road rash, you don't want to get like gravel and bloody hair. But like if we're being honest, it's just for vanity. But, you know, like in terms of six packs or eight packs or 15 packs or whatever, being fast in my view, is better than having abs like that. So, you know, I'm like, so be it. But, you know, interestingly, I mean, I never had to consider any of these factors as a bike racer because, you know, if you want to go fast on the bike, if you want to channel your power efficiently, you go and get a good bike fit, right? That's one of the best investments you can make in going fast on the bike is to make sure that any power that you're putting into the pedals translates into speed. But after you get that bike fit, you know, unless your seat post like slips, you're set. You are literally locked into a, an optimal position. You are, your feet are clipped into the pedals. Your handlebars are where they are. Your saddle is where it is. But you're, it's your own skeleton and your own muscles as a runner that like have to do that work. And you can't just lock in. You have to train yourself to be that strong chassis. And so that's where that's the biggest shift I made in my training from marathon one to marathon three. All right, folks, if you know me at all, you know that I love Inside Tracker. All right. Looking in the mirror, stepping on a scale, that's not going to tell you if you're a healthy person. You need to go deeper. You need to go inside. So Inside Tracker, you know, it helps you be resilient, to live better, to take basically anything that comes your way and make the most of it. And the thing that they're able to do is really look at, you know, your 40 some odd biomarkers, let you know if you fall within the normal range of someone um, with your characteristics. And there's this huge survey you take, which is really, really deep and informative, which is exactly what you want. You want to get the most knowledge that you can about your body and where it is right now so you can make short-term and long-term changes to move you forward. And these are the things that you can't just look in the mirror and see, right? If you have an iron deficiency, ferritin, vitamin D, uh, hormone imbalances, these are the kind of things that can have a significant effect on you as an athlete and as a person, and you're just not going to know where they fall uh, for you if you if you don't you know have your blood taken and, and take a peek at what's inside, and that's why they call it Inside Tracker for a reason, and they do such good work. And I'll tell you what, you got to go over there now because they're. Black Friday type deal is about to come to an end. So their ultimate plan, their best plan, you can save $200 on their ultimate plan, but you better do it soon. This baby's going to end in a week, in a week. And you can buy all these plans too for a while. You don't have to like buy one and use it right away. You can buy one in advance. Go over to InsideTracker.com. You have the link in my show notes. You go over there. The key thing here is make sure you use the code. 
Gift from Rambling Run. That's right, Gift from Rambling Run. You can go to the show notes to get the specific code that will save you all that dough, $200. I mean, my goodness, this is stuff you want anyway. So you might as well go there, save some dough while you're doing it, and become the best version of yourself. All right, obviously there's no video component to this podcast, but (laughs) are there certain exercises that you feel like you could... um, quickly explain that had a big benefit for you? Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, some of them involve leg driving. Um, so like there's one where you like have a band and you hook it up to, you know, like a a post or something like attached to the wall and then you put it around your ankle and you drive. So you're, you're driving your knee with resistance And it looks like the kind of thing that a sprinter might do. Um, And, you know, you don't use a ton of resistance. Again, it's not about like just getting stronger, like, um, but it's just about getting your brain used to that movement. So that's one. And then there are like all the little kind of PT like moves. Like there's this funny looking thing called the bear walk where you're, you know, on your hands and your feet and your knees are like close to the ground and you just kind of like are lumbering on the ground and it engages the glutes. Again, it's not like working the glutes hard, but it's just reminding your brain like, hey, these are the parts of your body that you should be engaging as you're running. And by learning it as a habit so that it's subconscious, that movement will still be there when you're, you know, in the last 5K of a marathon. And, you know, you you don't have the bandwidth in your brain to think about running with proper form anymore. And, you know, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I also like have fun geeking out on, on pop neuroscience books. And this concept of brain plasticity, like convinced me that this is possibly working that, you know, our brains do rewire like um, the way that our neurons are connected or whatever. Um, And so it didn't seem like quackery to me. I was like, okay, I, I can understand how this might actually be helping me. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth that this definitely seemed more like opening up neural pathways as opposed to working to muscle fatigue. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you do that too sometimes. And, you know, plyometrics has a place. And so periodizing my strength and mobility, like along with periodizing my running was really I mean, it's something I'd never anticipated doing, but, you know, like thinking of myself as this athlete who happens to run, I mean, that's what um, uh, Jason Fitzgerald, um, someone else whose work I really admire says that a lot, um, that kind of reframed how I thought of myself as a runner. Um, And it, it helped kind of free me from this like mindset of, you know, I should always be running, like everything should be super specialized. Like all of the stuff I do in my basement, it's not like cross training. It's not like superfluous. I mean, it's part of becoming a fast runner. And so, you know, to give yet another like name drop, this is like shameless, but, you know, I love Bromka's um, newsletter a couple of weeks ago, Peter Bromka, where he just like waxed poetic in, you know, his very typically poetic way about the minutes he spends every week in this small square of concrete in his basement in between like, you know, boxes of Christmas decorations and like the water heater and just how integrated that is in his life, like his kind of holistic investment in his running fast. I love this. I feel like you can name drop like all 282 <laughs> previous guests that I've had on this podcast over the course of this hour calling conversation. You're killing it. You know, it's quarantine. Like, what are we doing besides just like geeking out on running? Right. <laughs> all right. So there's you just dropped so much knowledge. I really, really appreciate it because this is a side of running that a lot of people, especially if they're um you have progressed through the sport for a number of years that they're aware of and maybe have even dabbled in from time to time. Whereas, you know, it's something that a lot of people maybe haven't fully invested in. And I'm raising my hand first here in this regard, um, just because they're like, all right, listen, I'm not disputing this. I understand that there's uh, some utility here that can help me out. But the fact of the matter is, man, I can barely fit in my running as is. Like, <laughs> now you want me to be doing like, you know, neural pathway work through bands and 
bear crawls and you know all this crazy stuff um like i'm barely getting my run in um why there's only so much time i only got so much time here and i think i referenced this quote before shoot it might have been like last week in the podcast i just put out um of my, my friend tyler underwood who said two years ago on this podcast if i'm coaching a runner they have an hour of time I'd rather have them run for 50 minutes and do 10 minutes worth of drills and proprioception and, and body work and then just simply run for an hour. Again, exactly. this is a sliding scale. I don't think if he, I don't think he would, you know, I think he would cap it at 10 minutes, you know, right? So it's like the vast majority of what you're doing is still running, but he made that point And it's a quote that I've never forgotten. Uh, is that, is that kind of where you fall as well? Yeah, you know, I think if I were playing devil's advocate to your resistance there, like that is one answer I would give that, um, you know, if your goal is to become a faster, healthier, more resilient runner, then yeah, it's probably worthwhile to replace part of your running with some of these um, maintenance exercises. My other answer would be that these exercises don't take that long. Like they really don't. I mean, you know, I would say like most of them take half an hour or less. And, you know, I do three sessions a week. Um, and, you know, you can do them in front of the TV. Um, so, you know, give it a shot. But it, it 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 depends on what your goals are. You know, like you said in, I think it was you <laughs> or one of your guests in a recent episode, um, you know, we all run for different reasons. I mean, some of us run to get faster. Um, some of us run to enjoy the scenery and yeah, you know, I don't know how fancy your basement is, but like the scenery down there is probably not as nice. You should as it see is how many Barbie dolls we got down here. It's so <laughs> fancy. Yeah. So unless that's your thing to, you know, gaze at Barbie dolls. My um, daughter also sure. has toys down here, I should say. Go, yeah, go outside. Um, you know, that's fine. But I, I would, I would assume that most of us run with an eye toward not getting hurt. Right. And like, that's one of the major benefits of this, too. Um, so, you know, you can't go on that scenic run if you have a stress fracture. I mean, and you can't PR your race if you never make it to the start line. And so for me, it's just a simple cost benefit analysis. And that's when I listen to podcasts. Like you wonder why I'm like I'm up on all of these um, recent episodes. It's because I use my work in the basement as prime time to listen to that stuff. There you go. There you go. And shoot, if you're doing bear crawls, you could easily you know throw the kids in the mix on that one. You know, you just chase them around. Um, all right. So so beyond all these things that you mentioned, and I really appreciate you bringing them up. Let's also talk about what you did in terms of um, you know differences in training. So you you know you dropped you lapped nearly 20 minutes off marathon time um going from 314 to 257 and change that's an enormous cut especially at those times because the percentage of time dropped is any again it's even greater right like there's there's a lot to be said for a five-hour marathon or cutting 20 minutes off the marathon time it's the faster you are the harder it is to lop off those big times just because the percent of uh the percent of speed increase goes up dramatically, right? Like Elliot Kipchoge is not going to drop 20 minutes off his marathon time, right? Like if he drops 20 seconds off his marathon time, it's an enormous change for him. Hey, you know, we don't know how these shoes are going to keep evolving. You never know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, so besides the mobility work, the exercise work, and making sure that you're setting yourself up for success and consistent running by staying healthy, how did the other parts of your training change over the past year? Mm. Yeah, so it's a little bit misleading for me to say like I leapt right from a 314 to a 257 because I had two marathon cycles in between those efforts. Um or maybe even like two and a half because I had one that um was supposed to lead to a fall 2019 marathon and then I got my stress fracture. Um so I did a full cycle of training um last spring preparing for grandma's marathon. And grandma's didn't happen, as most races didn't happen. Um, but as soon as the organization announced that the race had been canceled or gone virtual, I just stuck with my plan. Because being a novice marathoner, I thought, well, you know, let me just keep putting the hay in the barn. Like, this is not going to be wasted effort because I still need that experience. I still need to build 
that better stride, build resilient ligaments and like all the rest. Um, and I even heard that I, I want to say like Schumacher, like of Bowerman Track Club, like has um, like debut marathoners do a whole cycle and then not race <laughs> because you get that experience, but then you don't have to endure the recovery. Right. And so you don't beat up your that's body. Hysterical. That's, that's how I feel like as a parent who like makes food for their kids, like I make all this food and then they don't eat it. Like that's exactly like I can imagine the disdain at the end of that cycle being like, why would I want to do that again? But I can definitely see how that would help them going forward. Yeah, because, you know, the food goes rotten, but like the training (laughs) you did is still in you. And like, you know, Sarah Hall said as much about her disappointing performance at trials. She said she jumped into her next cycle and she kept getting faster. And we saw at London how that turned out. You know, Uh, I'm not saying I'm Sarah Hall, but I'm saying that like I, I tried to adopt the same mindset. It was also just like a way of coping with COVID. Cause like, I can't imagine if I had just stopped my training plan, I would have been aimless. I would have, this was right when COVID hit. And so it was like that acute shocking period when I needed some outlet for that anxiety. And so, you know, I gave myself a few weeks to like bag workouts and just feel sorry for myself. And then I got back on the horse and I didn't race. Um, you know, at the time, the thought of doing a marathon time trial by myself was like, hell no. Like who would ever do that? Um, and so I just, um, you know, tapered, didn't race, took a few weeks off and then jumped into another plan. And my, my training times in that subsequent plan were quite a bit faster than in the previous one. So yeah, my, I ended up doing a time trial a couple of weeks ago. Just, it's amazing how our mindsets shift, like as COVID wears on, like what your standards for acceptable become. It was like, okay, I'm going to do this time trial. And when I stood on the, you know, start line that my partner had chalked on some random bike path, I knew that I had a sub three in me, even though my previous time on record was 314 because I had that additional cycle under my belt. Like the hay was in the barn. I hadn't fed it to the cows, but like I was about to do it. Yeah, this is very interesting because this is very of the moment right now, right? Like I have runners that I coach who I have a marathoner last night who, who their marathon got canceled, right? So it was the College Station Marathon in Texas. And I know Texas actually just canceled, not the state of Texas, but like the Ironman 70.3 in Texas that was about to happen um, just got canceled as well yesterday. So obviously there's sweeping changes going on over there from a um, restriction standpoint. And, you know, it's heartbreaking, right? You build up, you build up, you build up, and some outside force determines that you can't race, whether that's an injury or a COVID restriction or, you know, name name another thing that could happen. And you bring up a great point here of just because the race doesn't happen doesn't mean that the training didn't happen. Doesn't mean that there weren't changes and improvements and, and all of these other areas. Tell Talk to me a little bit about how you rebounded uh, mentally, emotionally from grandma's getting canceled and then kind of starting that next cycle. So getting over the disappointment of like not being able to complete the race and then the time frame and what you did during that time between that next cycle starting up. Well, COVID forced me to adopt a mindset that I'm going to take with me. Like if there is an after COVID, like I really hope there is. It's kind of taught me this mechanism to cope with crippling race anxiety, which I've had as long as I've been racing in in any sport. Um, Because, you know, when you never know what's going to happen. Like, yeah, COVID happened. And this time that's why I didn't get to race, but injuries happen and, you know, weather happens and your car breaks down on the way to the race and like whatever. And especially for marathoners where you only have maybe a couple of shots per year, um, that can be a lot to, to shoulder, right? That's a lot of anxiety that itself becomes, you know, counterproductive. It it can really harm your performance. And so if I tell myself on the start line that no matter what goes down right now, I've still put in the work and that is not lost, right? It's not like rotting food that you've cooked and nobody eats. Like no one, like to be like really melodramatic about it, no one can take that away from me, right? Not even myself. Like if I, you know, just wimp out at, you know, the 20th kilometer or something, like my body still remembers all of that work. And so that is such a relief. 
And it meant that on the day of that time trial, you know, I realized that, you know, it wasn't official. And although my partner did go out with a wheel and walk the course, um, bless his heart, um, you know, it didn't quote unquote matter. But, you know, I still wanted to perform well, but I really wasn't nervous. Like, and I can't remember the last time I went to a race without nerves, just with the confidence that I had put in the work. And that'll always be there. That's interesting because I had a time trial this past weekend and I was extremely nervous about it. Whereas when I've had races with other people, I haven't been because I've been able to stay externally focused on these other people. Whereas all of a sudden I'm in the situation where like, I'm the only one on that bike path. Like literally there's no one else around and it was eating me up. And, you know, luckily I'm working with, you know, sports psychologist who's helping me with, with a variety of things, including this. And for me, that actually was a little harder for me. So was some of your race anxiety external and, you know, basically competition focus? Is that, is that kind of what, what some of the root cause was? Um, I don't think so because in running, there's less of that. I mean, for most of us citizen runners, right? Unless you're at the front of the pack, um, you know, it's basically a time trial. I mean, yeah, we queue off of other runners, but, you know, outside of like, a you know, collegiate cross country or something, um, you know, we don't toe the line, you know, eager to beat a ton of people. I mean, maybe we, we create those scenarios for ourselves if we show up with our friends and, you know, we have like, you know, little rivalries to pick or whatever, but no, that, that hasn't really been my, my source of anxiety. I guess it's been, um, my, just my, my desire to, um, see in a really narrow way, my work payoff. Like I, I hadn't, you know, zoomed out to realize that your work can pay dividends outside of race day. I mean, if anything, the race is like the icing on the cake. Like that's where we get to celebrate all of that work. But, you know, we're still growing as athletes, no matter what happens on that race day. Folks, I know you've been listening to me talk about the Rambling Runner Virtual Summit. I am so excited to get you into this summit. This is for the dedicated amateur runners like you that want to make 2021 the best running year of their life. So we all have things that have affected us at some point in our running, maybe, shoot, even, even today. Maybe it's affecting you today. These hurdles that we need to get past or these opportunities that we want to seize and take advantage of. And maybe it's just a, a shift in course that we want to take. And the, the 23 speakers that we're going to have at this summit are the best in the business, right? If you want to run an ultra on 60 miles a week, we got you covered. You want to learn, hey, I need to learn more about hill training. I know, I, I know it can help me, but I don't know a lot about it. We got you covered. Or you're stuck on a treadmill over the winter. What am I supposed to do with this thing? I hate treadmills. How can I make this work for me? We got you covered. Just go to theramblingrunner.com forward slash summit. Sign up today. You get lifetime access to the videos. You get a lifetime access to the audio. I'm going to put them in podcast form for you. So even if you can't make the summit January 15th, 16th, and 17th, don't worry. You will have this information at your disposal. So go to theramblingrunner.com forward slash summit. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. All right, so so grandma's is canceled. Um, you have to you know kind of work through the idea of like again intellectually you understand. All right, this is the, the training still was there. That was helpful. I know why this was canceled. I could I could see it coming, but at the same point you still have to kind of work through that cancellation because obviously you probably had some some optimism and hope and even in the face of. Um, you know, all common sense, you know, sometimes we just hope that hope upon hope that that something like that will end up coming to fruition. So once that gets canceled, walk me through the next few weeks or so in terms of handling it. And then, you know, your decision when to restart your psych, your marathon cycle and what the goal was either from a time trial or race perspective. Well, right after grandma's was canceled, I mean, <laughs> to, to be honest, like I, I struggled to execute workouts and, you know, listening to myself, like the past few minutes, I, I sound a lot more like a, you know, like some kind of Zen, like Yoda than I, than I am. Like, I mean, I've been freaking out along with everyone and never was that 
like more the case than in the couple weeks after, um, you know, after it became clear that that COVID was was what it is. And um, I remember going out, I was supposed to do like um, two by 15 minutes of tempo. And I pulled the plug after like five minutes. And, you know, I was just like, what's the point? Like (laughs) my my philosophy was like, you know, why does it, I, I, I oscillated between these two like rival philosophies. On the one hand, I was thinking, you know, what, what does this matter? Right. Like when people are dying, when like, you know, the world might be ending. I mean, cause it, it felt so catastrophic and, and maybe it is as much so right now, but we don't see it in the same way. But I was like, what does it matter? Why even try, you know, like in the scheme of things, like running is, you know, um, so trivial. And then I would flip to this opposite philosophy, like, you know, well, life is short. And now, you know, I see my mortality in starker relief than I ever have. And so I'd better make sure I use every moment I have on earth to like do things that fulfill me. And so I should really lean into running. And so it was, I felt like I was being pulled in both directions. I mean, I still feel that way, but after that initial shock of COVID and the race getting canceled, um, I, I returned to my training plan as a source of structure in my life. I mean, I've been working at home and I'm not used to doing that. You know, so many of us are cooped up. And so just having something on my schedule every day, um, I think was essential for my mental health. And then I realized that I can keep training. I can keep improving as a runner, even without the race on the horizon. And then eventually, like months into this, I started seriously considering a time trial but that took a while <laughs> oh interesting so you started that that's so i think a novel concept for a lot of people of, of basically starting a marathon cycle not with an end in mind uh, at least from a concrete perspective right so you're it's not like um you know so for a lot of people that, that can be very different that's I mean, basically it's anathema to marathon training Right. You yeah, basically yeah. You start, you start at the end and then you work backwards. You're like, you're like, this is the marathon I want to do. All right. What's 16 weeks from the taper date. All right. This is when I should start. Yeah, no, it was really late that I actually committed to doing a time trial. I mean, for, you know, for months I was like, hell no. And then I was like, maybe. And then, you know, I was like, probably. And then, you know, only, I don't know, maybe a month and a half before the thing I said, okay, I'm definitely going to do it. This is the date, measure the course, you know, let's do it. I mean, and, and maybe this is COVID teaching life lessons again. I mean, we always hear these cliches about like embracing the process, not the end game and like blah, blah, blah. And I guess COVID forced me to do that. Yeah. To like dive into this to really two training plans without any concrete finish line. Um, And then the finish line kind of, I added it on at the end. Right. That is so interesting. All right. So you mentioned to me prior to this call that you basically like failed. Your words were um, something to the extent of like you had failed out of running yeah. in high school and college. Um, and then you you kind of, you know, contextualize that for me. It was a very interesting way of putting it because at first you're like, and I'm sure this is why you phrased it that way of like, wait, that that's impossible. How does someone fail out of running? That doesn't that doesn't, doesn't uh, immediately compute. So tell me a little bit about your background in running, because you've already talked at length about how you were a cyclist and how that kind of prepared you and in some ways didn't prepare you for running. But that's not where your, you know, your endurance career started. It actually did start with running to some degree, but didn't end up panning out. Yeah, it kind of false started. Yeah, because my cycling, quote unquote, career was, you know, late. I mean, I got into cycling in grad school, um, but, you know, I was never an athlete before then, I mean, growing up, I was a proud non-athlete and, um, I, I hated when we had to run the mile in school, like in middle school, I had friends who, you know, were on traveling soccer teams and stuff. And I just wanted nothing to do with that. Like just didn't interest me. Um, I was a musician. I played the harpsichord. I was like a big nerd. And, um, in high school I got maybe, dangerously obsessed with uh, speech and debate. So I I was recruited to a team as a high school student, but it was a debate team. <laughs> no shame. Um, and um, I got really, I mean, that, that allowed me to scratch my competitive itch. 
Um, and you know, I did really well, like whatever that means in like high school forensics. And then, um, I went to college and like debate was no longer the same thing. And I kind of went through this like mini identity crisis. And then, you know, I, I started running just on my own because for the briefest time in high school, I had dabbled in running, but as a function of my like obnoxious overachiever nature, um, in academics, because, you know, I wanted my letter jacket, right? And um, in at my high school, maybe this is some symptom of like the everyone's a winner, like, you know, millennial complex or something, you could earn multiple letters for different activities. So I obviously had my varsity debate letter, cue laughter from the gallery. I had my academic letter from, you know, being on the honor roll or whatever, um, and I had a music letter because as a harpsichordist, I served as the accompanist for the, the high school choir. But I had this gaping hole on my letterman's jacket. Like You can't have a letterman's jacket without an athletic letter, right? Come on. That's just embarrassing. So I was scratching my head like, huh, I'm not an athlete, but I need to get an athletic letter. What can I do? What sports will be the fastest track to that letter? And there were two sports that were varsity only. One was golf and one was cross country. And I rejected golf just to rebel against my father, who was a golf player. And so by default, I joined the cross country team, um, you know, just as an opportunist. And it, it was horrible. Like, you know, I liked kind of, you know, tooling around on local trails, um, in Northern California and it's like the suburban East Bay where I grew up, but the racing, I mean, cause I didn't have any idea of pacing, you know, I just had no information about running. And so I would just go kamikaze and like blow up and just like could not handle the pain. And there was nothing but pain like in the short period I was racing because I was just going full gas. And so I did like one or two meets in the regular season enough to like get my letter. And then um, for the, the conference championship, like I'm still ashamed talking about this. It's like the opening of one of Matt Fitzgerald's like million books. He writes about a similar experience where he basically just like hid <laughs> from the start line. He just like didn't show up to the race. And like, that's what I did. I was like crying. I was like, mom, can you like call in sick for me? And so I just chickened out. And like, that was the end of my running career in high school. And so in college, I only resumed running at all because debate was no longer available to me. Um, but then when I tried to join the college cross country team, um, I encountered this really toxic environment. Um, and so, I mean, I'll pause now. We can get into that too. But I don't know if you have any questions about like harpsichord and running and debate or anything. I so many, so many like 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 little satirical comments. But I think I think it's hysterical. I think it's awesome. I think first of all, it's like the funniest rebel rebellious kid in the world. <laughs> like I'm gonna rebel against my father by being the best high school student in the world. Like. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't quite feel like rebellion, but just, Fair enough. It, is, it, is, it is a remarkable thing. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, man, that is that is a remarkable story. So when, let me ask you this question, because I had the conversation with my coach yesterday and we talked about pace or two days ago. We talked about pacing and things like that. And one of the comments he mentioned was that so much so often the people who go out way too hard in races are the people who are most scared to race. And that that is they're basically like they're setting themselves up for what, you know, for, for you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to phrase this incorrectly. But by doing that, they're basically guaranteeing their own demise in a sense. And that like it's the confident runner who, you know, who can who can pace themselves because they know at the end of the race, like I'm going to I'm going to be fine. I'm going to have energy. I'm going to have my speed. And that's, is it going to hurt? Of course it will still hurt. It's a race, but I'll be able to really dial it up when I need it. Whereas the scared runner who's like, oh my God, I need to just go out hard and, and then we'll, we'll figure it out. And I hope I have it. And um, it was an interesting thing because I you know, certainly I've experienced both sides of that. And I know so many other people who've gone out too hard, too fast. I never heard it 
discussed in that manner before. Does that ring true at all with your experience at that age? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, well, I definitely had the fear of racing, um, you know, to the extent that I like hid from, um, from the race at the end of the season. Um, but I think like my um, kamikaze approach to racing was also just a function of like my ignorance. I just didn't have the information. Um, and, you know, I came to that really late. It wasn't until, you know, I was on a cycling team in graduate school with an excellent coach that I even knew what training really meant. And like, it's really heartening to see. I, I have the impression that that coaching is improving um, at earlier levels, right? Like in, in high school and in college, um, like that young people, young runners have better access to information now. I mean, the internet probably helps too, but I just, I had no idea, you know? And like, so it wasn't just race strategy. It was also, I didn't have the training that let me feel confident on the start line. You know, that feeling when you like the hay is in the barn, like you can trust your training. Like uh, that was just not, not happening in high school. So let's talk about the, um, the college coaching, the, the college coaching advisement and running experience, um, which also kind of sent you on a path of not really, um, you know, not really loving the sport because it seemed to be an impactful one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I was really hoping that running could become my debate. Like I missed being on a team so much and you know, those like, like tired film plots about like high school jocks and like bullying the non-jocks and whatever. I never experienced that in high school or middle school. Like I was a proud nerd, like proud and unapologetic. And my debate team outshone the athletics team. So like we were like, I mean, maybe this is all in hindsight. Maybe other people thought we were nerds and lame, but like, as far as we were concerned, like we ran the school. So like, I didn't have that um, inferiority complex with regards to sports until college. And like in college, because I didn't have my crew, I was just looking for a community and, you know, I was kind of getting back into running. So I was like, Oh, maybe I'll try this cross country thing. But almost immediately, all of that kind of jock complex just came roaring to life. And, you know, if I'm being charitable about it, like I won't assign most of that blame to the quote unquote jocks. I think, you know, I probably had a lot more agency than I realized in terms of how I responded to like the just the culture so you know there's a partying culture to that which is you know obviously not good for your running either like when people smell like beer during their morning long run like on on sunday it's like you know you could probably go faster if you didn't binge drink the night before um but also just like the the unhealthy attitudes toward eating you know overhearing at the dining hall table um from one of my male uh teammates, in fact, that like, if he had a fat kid, like he would disown the kid, like just really just like cartoonishly toxic um, language that, um, you know, fueled my own eating disorder and depression. And so I did like a summer of training um, and like one kind of interest squad meet. And then I, I just crumbled. And like, I, I was, um, I walked into the coach's office and you know, in tears and just said, you know, in some vague terms, like, I can't do this. And he said, well, I guess running just isn't for everyone. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't want to put a lot of blame on on one person. Like, I think that is symptomatic. Like everything I experienced um, in that environment was symptomatic of um, an overall culture that's no one person's fault. Um, but, you know, I'm glad to see that there are now outspoken like advocates for changing that kind of culture. Um, but it, yeah, like that's my false start in college to pair with my false start <laughs> running in high school. Yeah. And I'm so glad that it wasn't something that, you know, stopped you completely from um, experience something that you ultimately find so much joy in, in a lot of different ways. Um, if someone is going through, an experience that either you know mimics yours or has um, some similar elements in terms of they're just not getting the kind of experience that they want that they were hoping for, and they're 
you know, feeling depressed about it. I mean, depression, you know, depressed with it with a lowercase d, not, you know, capital D. Um, and just, it's just things aren't, aren't progressing the way they want. What are some of the things that you would tell them? I mean, you work in a college environment right now. I mean, you, I'm sure you have um, conversations, maybe not even about sports, but you know, similar types of conversations within this genre uh, with students, if not student athletes uh, from time to time. What is something that you would tell them? Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned my current role um, working at a college. So I was really glad when my college um, created a new role called, what's like the official name is like, um, faculty liaisons to sports teams. So I'm the faculty liaison to track and field and cross country. And so we're just kind of available for any student athletes who are struggling to balance their, their, their sports and their academics, who have, you know, these concerns about team culture that they're not comfortable bringing to their teammates or to their coach. Um, and, you know, as someone who, who didn't have like the ideal environment. I hope that I'm ideally positioned to counsel any students who who would need that help. I mean, fortunately, like it seems like um, like the athletics departments um, at my college are not toxic, um, and that like all the student athletes I've encountered, this is purely anecdotal um, because, of course, like some of the uh, these struggles often um, kind of fly under the radar. But you know, it seems like you know, the student and athlete portion of student athlete are in much better balance than when I was in college. Um, but my advice for anyone generally would be to find a group that does support you and find a group that does provide whatever you're looking for. And it might not be the group that you initially are seeking out. And so that kind of, you know, leads me into um, the group I ultimately found that like changed my whole life for the better, which is my, my cycling team in graduate school. And it took a long time by the time, you know, I finished grad school, I was like almost 30. Right. And I, I hope that people find their community before then, but better late than never. Lisa, this conversation has been so instructive and enjoyable. Thank you so much for coming on. I wish I could talk to you for another hour. Literally my kids just got off their Google meet above me. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're home. Their teachers have COVID. So they're home for two weeks uh, with quarantine. So I got to go. I hear the dogs going nuts. So we're going to cut it at the one hour mark. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. This was one of those podcasts where I look down at the clock and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> it's already, already gone over an hour on this show. Oh, my gosh. Like, I could definitely go on much longer. I don't want to do that to you. I know so many of you like it around the hour mark, so I try to keep it around that spot. But Lisa brought so much to the table and has so much to offer. And it was really nice to talk to her. Also, big shout outs to our sponsors, of course, Inside Tracker and Paper Trails Greeting Company. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. Go support them, right? They support the show. You love the show. Go support them. And you're going to be glad that you did. Also, the Rambling Runner Virtual Summit. You want to make 2021 the best year of your running life? Knowledge is power. Learn how to be at your best and have lifetime access to all that great content. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.